AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of security trends and news. Full video of this program can be found on YouTube by searching for AT&T Threat Track. So, John, you bring us a story about the return of the wizard. What is that about? <laughs> so, um, I guess that's uh, maybe some sort of code name for this. This um, vulnerability is in the Exim uh, server uh, software, which Exim is a uh, mail server software. Right. It's like an SMTP agent. And um, Mike Stair actually covered this vulnerability maybe a week or two ago on the show when it first came out. When Mike first covered the story, it was kind of um, just being released as, you know, letting people know that this vulnerability is out there. But this update to the story is that people are actually using it um, and they're trying to build a botnet out of it. So the interesting thing about this is I think initially when they were looking at it, there was some discussion that you might have to be locally uh, like a local user sending email through the XM server, but this does work remotely. So if you can send an email to a vulnerable server, and there's a lot of them, there's a lot of XM servers out right. there, um, you can um, uh, potentially compromise them if they're vulnerable to this. And it all kind of starts with uh, the receipt to um, header field, uh, which is, you know, normally you'll have a from and a to right. a subject line. Receipt to is uh, one of the header fields in the uh, SMTP message that you can pass. And the XM server software has a vulnerability in there that will allow you to kind of do a remote code execution um, by passing in uh, some malformed text or a payload uh, in a certain way. So the story that goes on here is pretty detailed about this particular piece of malware. The initial dropper is a little bit more advanced than most droppers that we see. So when it first drops the installation, a lot of them, they're just um, basic, basically a, a first stage dropper that goes and tries to fetch a more sophisticated payload from somewhere. Uh, this one appears to have a little bit more instrumentation in it to uh, collect a lot of system data. Um, uh, pretty robustly from that Unix server, uh, getting a lot of config files, even going down into uh, looking for Bitcoin wallets and things like that <laughs> on a Linux machine, which is interesting. Uh, not unheard of either, right. um, but it does a lot of uh, good instrumentation of what this victim that they just compromised is and sends that payload back up right. or uploads that information to a command and control server. Uh, the basic long and short of it is this vulnerability has been I guess kind of known about since earlier this year, maybe February, March timeframe when mm -hmm. the XM team kind of uh, announced that you should upgrade and uh, there is a patch available. The downside is a lot of people probably don't know that they need to patch. So um, hopefully they're, you know, on top of it and able to find out that, you know, a patch is available and get their systems patched. So if I understand that correctly, there doesn't need to be any user interaction, so someone can just send an email in with this malformed payload and it it infects the server? That's right. So if oh, you nice. can send <laughs> an email to a, ser a mail server okay. uh, and get it to get parsed by that uh, SMTP agent, the XM okay. SMTP agent, then it will trigger the payload. So are we seeing any campaign, I don't know if you guys have, I haven't seen anything, but any campaigns of people just mass mailing, just trying for this and seeing if they catch one? Or? Well, that's kind of what they're talking about here, because that's how they're yeah. infecting with this okay. recent variant here oh, is, right. I'm not quite sure how they determine their targets yeah, for this. Yeah, that's what I mean, yeah. Um, normally when you send email, you're kind of sending it from 
um, you know, some sort of client that you have, it goes through your local mail server, that gets relayed through a bunch of relay hosts probably before it ultimately ends up at the destination. Probably more likely what's happening is uh, these attackers are using uh, tools like Census or Shodan to identify um, XM servers that are out there uh, and they're more probably directly connecting to them and trying to send email directly to that uh, okay. vulnerable server. That's my guess. I don't know if you, did you see otherwise, Jim, or? No, that's, that's I believe, how it's spreading. And that's, that's the big fear when you get a, a vulnerable uh, mail transport agent like this is, you know, they can, they can just, they can massively send email and it, it doesn't even have to directly go, you know, if they, if they can get it relayed through somebody else, you know, it still will probably work. Now, the the one the one good thing, although XM is is relatively popular, it's at least number three on the list of most popular mail transport agents. As you said, John, word's been out for a while, so hopefully, most of them will get most of them have been patched or will be patched shortly. Yeah, you want to make sure that even though you've patched, that you've also made sure you didn't get infected during the time between um, now and then. Make sure you're not already infected. So just because you realize that you didn't patch uh, and you know you patch, you could still be infected, so you might have to take some steps to make sure that you, you're not. Hey, Jim, I understand the uh, lines between Windows and Linux are getting blurrier and blurrier, and uh, it sounds like there's uh, something you're looking into with respect to that that Microsoft announced, right? Yeah. The announcement was, I first saw it, I don't know, about the first week of May or something like that. They, they announced uh, a new version of the Windows subsystem for Linux would be coming out. Being a, a Linux, Unix guy from way back, I was kind of interested when Microsoft announced in the beginning of May that they were releasing a new version of WSL that would include a real live Linux kernel running on Windows systems. And I don't know, have either of you guys ever tried to run a Docker container on Windows? I avoided. <laughs> yeah, I usually use Linux. <laughs> it is extremely painful to try to run a Docker container on Windows. And I think that was part of the reason why they have finally developed this and then released it to the public, is with all of the move to containerization, I think Microsoft was feeling like they were getting left behind. but. The, you know, the security implication and what really got me worried as I started thinking about it is with a full-blown Linux kernel on there, now all of your Linux exploits <laughs> could potentially be run against a Windows server as well. Where before, you know, a Windows administrator could concentrate on, on getting, you know, under Windows things, now they also have to worry about the Linux things. It just got me worried as the paranoid security guy that that's gonna open open things wide up for the possibility of exploits against Linux that will run just fine on Windows machines now. Right, right. 
I want to say that there might be a silver lining. Maybe in, in you know, 10, 20 years from now, Windows might decide, all right, the Linux subsystem is perfect for what we're doing. Let's just get rid of PowerShell and all the old terminal things. And now we have you know, a common platform on all the systems that we can protect instead of now having a concentrate. Yeah, that's on a dream. <laughs> I, I said silver lining. <laughs> like actually get rid of the Windows kernel and replace yeah, it with the Linux not? kernel entirely yeah. and then strap on the Windows uh, user interface right. on top of that. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't see that happening anytime soon, um, but. Uh, I, while I don't see it happening on the desktop anytime soon, you know, I, I don't think that's entirely outside the realm of possibility long term. Right. To me, it, the way that it's been kind of marketed, I feel, is more for development, for like developers and and people that are that can use it in, in a specific way. Like I don't I don't feel that they're gonna start packaging it on you know Windows Home or even Windows Pro anytime soon. Like to me, like unless you have a need for it, it doesn't seem like something you will end up installing and using. So if if it's not something that you for you know see yourself using or that you just don't have any use for or that you tried and, and then you no longer need, you know, either don't install it or uninstall it immediately. Yeah, I would I guess I would echo your concerns that from a security aspect, I would be concerned that now I've got two threat surfaces yeah. potentially to worry about here. I don't really, I haven't looked at this WSL2, so I don't really know how much of the underlying operating systems are exposed. Right. If it's really mostly for containerized things, there's probably a little bit more security on Docker stuff, you know, about what gets exposed um, than a full-blown regular uh, like Linux distribution. But like you said, since there is a kernel built in there, I don't know, maybe it is. Maybe there's all these services that are running that now I've got to worry about Linux services as well as Windows services cohabitating and potentially all getting exploited. Yeah, well, they, they are available. That was one of the things. There, WSL was, was, was somewhat contained in that you didn't get access to all of the underlying Windows system calls, WSL2 you do. All right, well it's definitely one to watch. I guess my, um, the other thing I was just thinking about while you're talking is um, a lot of times I've seen that Windows server administrators are really good about knowing how to protect a Windows server platform, but not so much a Linux one and vice versa. So you're gonna have to kind of double up on your administrative uh, knowledge to make sure that you're covering both spaces equally as well because now you've got two threat surfaces to worry about, both the Linux side and the Windows side. Jonathan, I understand you've got a story on vulnerable Docker containers? Yes, Jim, thank you. Uh, actually, um, I'm gonna go back in time a little bit. So two months ago when I was last here, I mm -hmm. brought up a story about Alpine Linux and, uh, and, and the root account having like a, an empty password. Well, it seems like this researcher, so not my story, but the story in general, and was inspired to try to figure out how many more there were. Uh, this is uh, Jerry uh, Gamblin from Kenna Security. Uh, so he, he started trying to figure out, all right, how do I scan uh, a, a Docker image from Docker Hub. Uh, so around the same time in May, a group from Japan made this uh, open source application called Trivi, which allows you to actually pull 
a, a Docker image from the, uh, the hub or a private registry and actually uh, scan for, you know, run, extract the, con the contents of it and, and find out what vulnerabilities are running either in the OS level or even in some applications. I think they, they're covering uh, like Node, uh, an NPM applications, and Yarn, and there's some others. Mm -hmm. So this researcher was like, perfect, the tool that I need to be able to to run, uh, to find out what's going on in these images. So he actually ran uh, this tool through, I think, the top 10,000 uh, most pulled uh, images in Docker and uh, put the results out on the web. But uh, I think uh, vulnerablecontainers.org is the website. So that might be a good thing if you're big in the Docker space and you're making your own containers. Um, and images that you use that as a means of maybe as part of your production process to identify if you have any vulnerabilities in a container that you're building or using. Uh, one of them actually he mentioned in his, I was following him on Twitter, um, that is a little scary is I think uh, uh, Ruby on Rails which is very popular. Yeah. Uh, so um, there was an image called Rails that was deprecated uh, about two years ago, so lots of you know two years wor worth of vulnerabilities in the OS and everything else um, that um, that people are kind of still pulling from. Uh, Docker officially moved it to a new image called uh, Ruby. So unless you're aware that the name changed, oh, because normally wouldn't it like <laughs> uh, like. With, if it was still called Rails and they kept updating right. that, wouldn't you get like the new version? Correct, and, and that's kind of misleading, right? Because you can get the latest tag and keep pulling the latest image, but if they haven't updated in two years, right, right. Um, uh, the, the researcher moved it to a different name. And they so. moved it to a different name. Right. Yeah, the researcher points out that there's actually not clear way for you as someone pulling that to know that that's been deprecated unless you go to Docker Hub and see the description that says deprecated, right? Right, right. Um, so hopefully, you know, I think they're, they're talking about maybe trying to get someone to maybe put something in the command line to tell you, hey, stop using this or, or, or something where uh, a person pulling this, uh, you know, could have been from any, something that could have been used for years. So just, you know, from Rails, grab the latest. Right, right. Uh, but it's, you know, it's, it's it's one of the, Interesting. I, you know, millions of downloads, millions of pulls. You can keep pulling the latest, but just no updates coming. So I think there's some room for the Docker community to make users of Docker containers more aware of a potential issue with a container that they're importing or pulling in. So please check out the, the list that he that he released of all these uh, vulnerable Docker images, but uh, it's uh, a lot. A lot of uh, images that are, uh, you know, just maybe running on old OS um, or running, uh, you know, or just people that have uh, build applications that might just be running old packages. And uh, it, this tool might help you just have a better idea of, of what you're using in your environment. Right. Um, I was looking at the article and I noticed that they said uh, over 20% of them contained at least one vulnerability that would be considered high risk. Right. So it would be interesting. The, like to me, what I would be looking for as an attacker is which one of these containers have remotely exploitable right. vulnerabilities so I could go try to find more of them out there on the internet and things like that. Uh, I don't know, I haven't looked at their their right. website to see how they score these, but they have their own risk scores that they, they Yeah, I think Kenna Security has their own risk score, um, and it's some value between zero and a thousand. So there is a column for that, and I think, you know, if you see something with, I believe it's like 600 or more Kenna score, 
then you should really figure out how to either you know, patch that or use whatever version is the latest um, mm -hmm. for that specific uh, image. Yeah, well, that's one of the things, you know, Docker, you're containerizing it, you're, but you're mostly worried about your application, but you can build these on top of, you know, multiple other Docker images and how many people pay attention to the patches that are getting applied to the images that they're building on top of. Right. You know, you forget that these things get updated so quickly where now maybe if you use a tool like this where it shows you, you know, your image actually has X amount of issues update to this latest one, then it should be like a warning almost. Definitely something to keep an eye on. Dockerization, like Docker containers and containerization is really hot over it's the past here. couple of years yeah. here. So. Um, <laughs> Uh, even like uh, more so, you know, it really has taken a lot of the market share over the virtualization of, you know, virtual machines and whatnot, because they're lighter weight, uh, you can do more. So, all right, thanks, thanks. Jonathan. All right, Jonathan, I thought we'd take a look at the internet weather for this week. Um, no major changes, uh, a couple of things we'll take a closer look at. Uh, the ones I have highlighted here, port 8545 TCP, that's related to the Ethereum uh, GETH wallet. Uh, and then port 8088 TCP, I don't know that we've talked about that one specifically, but uh, we'll take a closer look at that one as well. Some of the other ones we talk about all the time, like Telnet and Microsoft File Sharing, SSH, Remote Desktop Protocol. So uh, we always see scanning uh, attacks against those on a regular basis. So. Um, probably not anything new ground to cover on those. So uh, the first one, the port 8545 TCP, um, we're seeing a really small number of scan sources, mostly from China involved in this. Um, but you can see there's kind of like a regular noise floor that we've been kind of sitting at for, this is a 90 day view, uh, for quite a while now. Uh, within the past, I would say, two weeks, it looks like it's kind of on an upward trend here in the amount of scanning uh, activity in general, not the number of scan sources, but just the sheer volume of scanning. You know, it went from maybe like 60 million scan flows per hour up to, you know, 120, 140 in some cases. So it's basically doubled. Um, in the same same sources though? Well, uh, I didn't really check to see how many sources or who's yeah. involved, but it's a very low number. I mean, this number of sources in China is like less than 30. So there's not a lot of them involved. There's um, not a whole bunch of actors involved here. Uh, but there's still people out there looking for it. So if you do use the GETH wallet, you definitely, hopefully by this point, you're aware of it, but people are still out there <laughs> looking for it. Um, so here is port 8088 TCP. Typically all these 80 or 8,000 range ports are usually associated with some sort of web service. Um, what we've seen with this is um, there's a small, very small number of scan sources, mostly in Europe at a uh, virtual private server cloud hosting provider, <laughs> I noticed. Um, and they appear to be scanning for this. And when we look at the actual scanning that they're doing, it appears to be some scanning uh, looking for a specific vulnerability um, in the Hadoop yarn service. We'll take a closer look at that in a second. But um, you can see there's some regular patterns here. These, from what I was able to kind of discern on these spikes, are um, 
some of these good guy actors, I should say, security researchers, researchers. let's just yeah. say that, uh, trying to identify how many vulnerable devices are out there like this. And there has been, you know, a, a bit of an upward tick here. Uh, when you look at kind of the noise floor, it's pretty low, but over the past week or so here, it's a little bit more aggressive than it had been. When we look at some of the samples here, um, this is what it actually looks like in our honeypot. They're doing a post to this specific URL. Um, and there is a vulnerability um, on the Hadoop Yarn Resource Manager. There's a remote code execution uh, exploit that's available for that. So it looks like they're at least trying to find them. And then probably if they get a good answer back that says, yes, I'm running and listening here, they would probably try to exploit further. Our honeypot isn't instrumented to uh, respond interactively like that. It just kind of grabs the first question. We Do don't... we know what the next step is? Are they trying to grab data? Yes. Uh, it's actually all in this exploit. Oh. If I, I didn't put yeah. the whole thing, yeah. it goes longer, but uh, this is uh, well documented and available out there on the internet if you look for um, this Hadoop Yarn Resource Manager exploit. It's kind of been known about since maybe sometime last year, I think, or maybe early this year. Uh, so it looks like there's at least some set of actors that are looking to exploit that. Um, this is the most sources probing. This one generally shows more botnet related activity where you have a lot of hosts or a lot of sources involved in scanning all at once. And um, uh, I kind of picked out two that we've talked about before. There's nothing really in here that's specifically new that we haven't talked about before. So just running down really quickly, 445 TCP is the Windows file sharing. A lot of the WannaCry stuff and other uh, types of malware that use that same Eternal Blue exploit. Telnet is a lot of IoT stuff, 23 TCP. Web stuff could be lots of different things. 8080 TCP also could be a lot of different things. 5431, I believe, is a Broadcom universal plug-and-play type um, uh, exploit that uses a, uh, a TR69 type of uh, uh, message. It's an XML message that you can send to it. Uh, we'll take a look at this one, 5555. 81 is the go-ahead web server. Typically, we see them scanning, trying to get into that. And then 1433 TCP is the Microsoft SQL server uh, that we still see a lot of scanning against. Let's take a quick look at port 5555 TCP, which is typically well known for the Android debugger service. Um, Stan did a really good job uh, analyzing this last week, and I'm gonna just pop that up and again in a second. But I gave a two-year chart on this, just so you can kind of see that prior to February of last year, really didn't have any scanning activity whatsoever on this port. Um, but then it kind of went up. We had a real big flurry of activity. But since that time, it's kind of had this regular kind of noise floor of activity in the 10,000 to 12,000-ish scan sources per hour that we're seeing. When I looked at where most of the scanning is coming from, I put some numbers up here. Um, a lot of them are in these five countries. So Hong Kong, China, South Korea, the US, strangely, and Taiwan. Um, but you can see when you add all those up, that's probably like 7,000 right there or something. I'm just eyeballing it. You know, so 7,000 of the 10,000 or so scan sources are all in those countries. And then you got a lot of other countries that have, you know, much smaller numbers uh, showing up in there. Um, when we look at, oh, actually, this was Stan's report. So I'm not going to go over this in detail because Stan covered this pretty well. He actually was kind of curious, like, what are, what do we see in the honeypot? Um, in terms of exploits against this particular port. 
because I had observed before that I see weird things. It's not necessarily the Android debug bridge. That was always the minority in terms of the types of scanning we saw against it. You can see here, it's only about 6.7% of all the scanning hmm. that he reported from last week um, was related to the Android debugger service. More often, we're seeing HTTP type things, which um, are more like, this is actually looks like a TR69 type request, even though it's very hard to read here. But you can see he had a little message in here that has, where they're injecting um, a command to go fetch a piece of malware and then run it. There's also some, some uh, scanning that looks like it's looking for the XM rig, which is another type of cryptocurrency um, piece of software. Um, and then also RDP is the lion's share of it, which I thought was interesting as well, and I guess he did as well. And they're basically looking for when they connect is RDP for, they use the usernames of either hello, administrator, or test. And in most parts, it's test, which is interesting. So it's interesting that the majority of the scanning is not even related to the vulnerability that's most well known for. You know, is there somebody out there using 5555 for RDP for some? I don't know. It just seemed odd to me. Um, I, I, I would like to know why. <laughs> and then lastly, I thought it would be interesting to take a look at scanning on port 23 TCP because we haven't looked at this a lot lately. And you can see this is way back in, this is a really long-term chart. I went back five years. And you can see back in the 2014 timeframe, you know, there was a lot of scan sources, uh, you know, still up around 50,000 here. But there was a period here where it really went up and this is in the Mirai era. Okay. So we're all kind of familiar with the Mirai malware. Uh, this was its heyday in this this uh, big clump here, and then it kind of started to get under control, and since has you know had some ups and downs, but now it's kind of stabilized. And this is probably the past year or so, I'm going to say roughly a year where it's been very regular down in the 50,000 scan sources per hour, roughly, um, as opposed to all this noise. This is 400 thousand scan sources per hour. So that was pretty significant way yeah. back. During Is it that, that we're seeing less 23 TCP out there? Why they're not trying? Or it's just like... I'm like, going to guess, I don't know exactly why, yeah. but I'm going to guess that people who might have had devices that were vulnerable either fixed them or replaced them. And I think that device vendors since this time <laughs> yeah. frame of 2016, that was about three years ago, there's been a lot more attention to what services have been exposed and securing them better. Right. So I think there's just less devices, maybe ones that were infected have been replaced over time, um, and there's just not as many being infected. Right, right. Um, and you know, like I said, this is not an insignificant number of devices that yeah. are still scanning for this, um, but uh, it's definitely much less than it had been yeah. uh, you know, a few years back. So I just thought that was an interesting view. Cool. And that's all we have for this week. Thanks. All right. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.